Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I gotta tell you something, people. Back when I was like 10 or 11 years old, my brother always played great albums. And one of the albums he played was Cheech and Chong's Wedding Album. And I still remember, I, I would look at that album, and I'm 10 or 11, so I really didn't get the concept of the, the conjoined twins on the cover and the bride being pregnant, but I just laughed because she had a bag on her head. And then I would listen to the album, and at 10, you know, you don't really understand things. But when I heard, you know, you know, well, here's your pepperoni and here's your pizza and, and it looks like your grandfather eating ice cream. It just made me die laughing. And, and even earache my eye when he's like, you know, well, we don't, we don't bend over, you know, bend over. What are you going to do, you pervert? I don't even think I knew what a pervert was, but it was just the voices that made me laugh and just the sounds. And that's what comedy should be. I think too many people delve too much into comedy instead of just laughing. And as a kid, and I just listened to the album this weekend, and I still laugh my ass off. But I think that's what's great about my guest. My guest is Tommy Chong, who was Cheech and Chong, and he made me laugh. And actually, it's one of the reasons why I had a 10-year career in stand-up comedy, because those early years of listening to make me laugh. And how you doing, Chum, Tommy? Well, thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm having a good time. I'm enjoying my life. I'm, uh, uh, you know, uh, getting older and uh, literally, actually, I'm learning how to cope with uh, with old age. And uh, if you do it right, it's like anything. It's like like fine wine. You know what I mean? Like it, the wine, in order to to get incredible, it has to age. And uh, and if it's aged properly and taken care of and then treated right, uh, it, it can be a, a, a beautiful experience. And that's what I'm finding out about old age is that it's uh, it's just another moment in your life that uh, if you do it right, you can really enjoy it. Well, I think I think what it also is because my mother-in-law is seventy-eight. And she is always on the go. And I think it's like if you just sit there and go, you're getting older, you know that you can't go 200 miles per hour when you used to, but like 100 and you just keep busy. I think you just enjoy it because you're also bringing all this wisdom of everything you've learned for the years. Well, yeah. Well, the human body itself is uh, a thing of beauty. And, and it's something that if you like an old classic car, if you take care of it, uh, it, it'll it'll just increase it with beauty and 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 actually service. Uh, and that's what I'm finding out. You know, is that there is no reason there's no reason to you know. Uh, it depends. Everybody's. So such an individual, and, and what I learned in, in my quest uh, for satisfaction—that's that's what we're we were looking looking for. Uh, and and I don't, I don't know, man. I, the older I get. The younger it seems that I start my memory. I, I remember listening to to comedians, especially uh, Mums Maberly. Uh, she she was this black uh, lady, uh, and she was actually a gay, very gay, and 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 she was the man of the of the uh, 
you know, the gay world. She was actually the guy, and she dressed like a man. And, and uh, but when she did her act, she'd take out her teeth and she put on the house dress, and and she'd be old, an old lady. She was an actress, phenomenal actress, and so funny. And and when she's talking about old people, this one guy says, you know, um, when I was, you know, when I was old, I I, I lived in the country. She says, when you were old, everybody lived in the country. <laughs> now, I want to ask you, you know, as I said, you, you've had an amazing career. Now, is it true you started off as a musician? Yeah. So tell me, about, tell me about that. I was a working class musician. I grew up in the country. And when you grew up in the country, in fact, I just watched a show in, in, in uh, South America. They have a thing called Mita, Mita. Uh, in, in, in Brazil, they call it uh, Milanga. When it's like everybody gets together and they have a dance, it's a Milanga. Well, this is a Mita. Well, a Mita is when someone needs help doing something. The neighborhood has a Mita. And everybody shows up. And everybody helps. And, and, and it's not done for money. It's it's done to help the other guy. And and your only thing is, when you need help, everybody will come out to help you. And I found that to be, on so many levels, how I lived when I was growing up in the country. Because that's, that's the way it was. One thing everybody had in common in the country was property. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's why that's why we never had garbage pickup because there was no garbage to be had in the household. You see, when you grow up poor, uh, you use everything. You know, even even the, the, we, we had what because we had indoor uh, outdoor plumbing. You know, we had to go down the the. About a half a mile to get to get water, where the pump was, you know, where I could get a bag of what do you call a a bucket of water, and that was the chores that we did. And then for for heating, it was a wood stove, wood coal stove, and we had a little stash of wood that my my dad would once a year he would. He'd buy us. Uh, he'd buy the the lumber from the natives. And my dad is very Chinese, and and he always looked for the bargain. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, we never. <laughs> uh, I never had a steak until I was, I think, twenty three years old. <laughs> because if you bought a hunk of meat that big in, in a Chinese family, that got chopped up and it went into the dish and everybody's sure there's no such thing this is your steak <laughs> no such thing <laughs> and so my dad for for firewood he would buy <laughs> firewood from the natives but it's not chopped up <laughs> the natives would drag a tree <laughs> and drop it off in front of the house <laughs> and, and okay, you had to have a saw and an axe, and <laughs> there's your wood. <laughs> uh, so, as I got older, and and then you know, like my my 
said, you know, he's complaining about the homeless, you know, all oh, the homeless, this, homeless, that, you know, and, and like he's, he's, he, what do you call it? Uh, he, he's young, he, an elite. That's what my son was. Well, in my, when I grew up in the country, we had our, our cottage, but across the field, this, it was, he, he wasn't, they weren't homeless, but they lived, what happened, the guy's uh, wagon, he had a team of horses and a wagon. Uh, and, and, and when, <laughs> it was a covered wagon when they needed it, but uh, he couldn't, he had to use the wagon to make, uh, to make a living, you know, with the horses. And so what he did, he had a, he started a lean-to across the field from us, and he would get lumber or whatever, pick it up on the you know in the fields, but was it being used? And he built a lean-to, a, a structure, lived there, had what four or five kids while he lived in the lean-to with his wife, and they had a kitchen stove, but it was a dirt floor. But he had a carpet over the dirt floor, and but it was it, it it was cozy, and and because you know I was a, that young, I, you know I could wander around anywhere I wanted. I'd always wander over there, and that's the guy. When he was over there one time, he he pulled out a fiddle, and he started playing a played a, he could play fiddle. Well, I had a guitar at home, and so. Uh, I, I started learning how to play the guitar and, and I could play good enough to back up the fiddle player. Well, then another fiddle player moved across in a real house, not the Legion, but in a real house. <laughs> and he found out again, he needed a guitar player. So, so he found out that I could play guitar. I was eight years old at the time. Uh, and uh, I could play enough to help him with his fiddle playing. And so what I did, I became a backup guitar player at the early age of eight, nine, 10, 11, you know. Uh, so we'd play for parties. And I loved it because, uh, you know, I was one of the band. You know, I was a kid with a band. And they'd say, yeah, give the kid a beer, you know, and I'd, be, I'd have a beer under my chair. I hated the taste, you know. I'd rather have a seven up, <laughs> you know, or, or, or water. But it was give the kid a beer. Well, Years later, I became an army cadet, and then when I was an army cadet, and guitar wasn't my my instrument. My instrument was an accordion, which my cousin never played, and he had it in his room. And every time we'd visit my cousin and my aunt, that I would go in the room and play the accordion so much that one day I was going home and they had the accordion packed, and they they gave it to me. They said, "Here." <laughs> you you got more use for it than my than my cousin. So when I was in army cadets, I started playing. Uh, I I brought the accordion with me, but I never brought it up to play because I didn't I didn't like the that all the attention, you know. And I wasn't that good. I was I could play for my own enjoyment, but I could play guitar. And so this other cadet, uh, he became an L. This is before Elvis. This is '53, and then uh, when Elvis hit, then uh, in '54, then 
the kid became an Elvis impersonator and Elvis is backup guitar player. And because I could, I learned how to keep rhythm really good. I became, uh, you know, quite uh, adept at being a, a backup guitar player. And then over the years, I started learning a little bit of soloing and, you know, le learning a little bit more guitar. But my, my main job was rhythm, was keeping the rhythm. And so I was in demand, you know, as far because we, you know, that was before drummers, before, you, you know, that it was normal to have a drummer in the band. You know, yeah, you know, especially in, in Western Canada, uh, if you had a fiddle player and a guitar player, that's all you needed. And, uh, and so that's how I ended up playing music. And then I got hooked into the, I got into dancing. I got into uh, uh, jive. It was uh, uh, In the Mood by Glenn Miller. Well, I went to a school dance one time and there's a, this really good looking bad guy, you know, with the big drape pants and long hair and he's jiving. He's driving away, and the girls were loving him, and he was handsome, and <clears throat> and so he became my, you know, oh, you know, I, I I had a role model now, you know? so I learned how to dance, and so I've been, uh, so so once I learned how to dance, and I found out the power of a dancer is enormous. You have if you know how to dance, you have girls lined up to dance with you. And I'm talking about the foxies women in the in the joint. They're they're like, whoa, you know, forget it. This guy can it's cute or not. He can dance. <laughs> he can make me look good. And so I learned how to dance before you know, when, while I was in school. but I was shy. I was very shy. I, I grew up in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. And it, I found out later how racist it was. Probably one of the most racist uh, places on on the planet after the the Second World War. You know, in fact, outside of uh, Calgary was a little town called Olds, and, and that was the first Holocaust uh, denier. The guy, the guy was. Uh, I always preached that the Holocaust was uh, was. Never happened, you know that 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 kind of mentality, and that's where I grew up. I grew up in that 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 kind of area there, and so as a, as a a minority, which I, I definitely was, I was half Chinese, I still am half Chinese, uh, and and I found out later later that I, I'm part Native, uh, in which my parents, especially uh, uh, my mother. My dad never really talked. He he would he was Chinese and he'd show up and leave, and never said goodbye, never said hello, never said goodbye. Just he'd appear and then he'd disappear. <laughs> but my my mother, she was like the matriarch of the family, and and when she she was in the sanitarium uh, for TB for five years of my life, you know, I, I didn't see her until she was. You know, till I was seven, eight years old, when I finally, uh, when she finally came home, and then I had a, a mother, and father, but my whole uh, existence, uh, being half Chinese, and being shy, you know, and I had an older brother. And my older brother was was 
was also shy, but he was the one that took the brunt of all the beatings. You know, he was the one that was treated really bad because he was half Chinese and because we were in a home for a while, you know, an orphanage. And he had to go to the public school from the home. And so there was a stigma on that back in the days, you know. You talk about bullies, you know. There was bullies that scared the shit out of teachers, you know. And because back in the day, uh, there was no like trade schools or anything like that. There, and uh, in, in, in living in the country, uh, kids would uh, be taken out of school to work on the farm. You know, uh, we need your harvest. You know, so so a lot of you know there were like eighteen year olds trying to get through grade three or four. You know, and, and so there was like this weirdness of, of adults, <laughs> basically, and, and bullies. You know, and that was, uh, you just stayed out of, out, of, out of sight more than anything. And if you looked different or acted different in, in any way, you know, you were singled out. So that, I learned how to, how to, to stay under the, the fire, the eyesight of, of these people. Because when you live in, in, in a racist country like that, there, there, there's no protection. You know, and, and if the racists zero in on you for whatever reason, you know, that's why you, you, the best uh, is to stay invisible. You know, just just don't be noticed. And, and that's basically what I did most of my life. And then as I got older, you know, I got mouthier. <laughs> and, but luckily I had a, I had an older brother that scared the shit out of most people. Well, my first day, let me tell you, my first day in, in grade school, like we're out of the country. In the country, we had to walk the mile or through the fields and everything to get to the country school. But when we moved into the city, it was just down the, you know, it was a, like a half a mile away and you could walk to school with your friends. And, uh, and there was no secrets. Everybody knew who everybody was. And, uh, and the, for my first day in, in the grade school, I had an encounter with a bully. The teacher's sitting there at the desk, and she's sipping her tea. And this bully came in where I was sitting, and right over to me and started smacking me around the head, you know, just for no reason, for no reason, other than I was brown. You know, I was a little brown guy. Well, the bully had no idea that I had an older brother, three years older than me, and that meant big, strong, mean and when he heard what the bully did to me the t the teacher never did anything but my brother sure did and, and back in the day when i went to school there there was a place called the water tower it was next to the school and they had like a chain link fence supposedly around it but that's where the kids would go to to fight there's a fight after school almost every day so it was like MMA fighting and the kids would make a circle and then guys and combatants would get in the middle of the ring, ring and, and just duke it out and and my brother because he was so mean and, and, and he scared the shit out of most of everybody and then he became a football player so he was like a star football player uh, on there and he was, he was tough as nails and, and, uh, and so that kind of saved me but, but with me, I began, because I had a big mouth, 
you know, I, I, I don't know where I got it from. I don't know, but anyway, I, I, I would say things that weren't, <laughs> weren't the best uh, PG thing. But, uh, you know, thanks to my brother, I, 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 I managed. And then, and then when my brother wasn't around, I, I would, I would uh, get along with the bully. I'd make the bully laugh. And, and and that that would that's what saved me. But uh, it was my humor and, and 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 then my musical ability. Then when I got it playing, especially with Elvis, uh, playing Elvis impersonator, because when you start moving like Elvis, uh, all the girls. I mean, that, the girls were like, ah. <laughs> I mean, picture this Elvis impersonator, full-blooded Sarsi native kid. You know, he would look like a native, but when he started moving, you know, moving his hips, moving his legs and that, like Elvis, the girls would go crazy. And and so I started my my musical career in front of girls, you know. And so I, I knew that I knew what you had to do in order to do it. And then that really made up for my lack of musicianship. Now... Okay, so you're you're a musician and you're loving the girls. I gotta ask you though, so how do you end up doing comedy? Because I did stand up comedy for eight years, and we all wanted to be musicians. No one, no one ever became like went from being a musician to a comic. They would be like, "Well, God, we would love to be a musician." But how did how did that happen? Like, how did you and Cheech and Chong start? What got you? Uh, out well, of music? I'll tell you some secrets. George Carlin played piano in a band before he ever ever did any comedy. George, George was a rock and roll musician. Uh, Carlin was. Uh, not Richard Pryor, but uh, yeah. I mean, the thing is, I was lucky. Like I said, I never really spoke. I never really talked, even when I played music. Yeah, I was too busy playing music, you know, in the microphone. The most we ever did was, uh, and we, we always had a singer. And the singer was uh, doing all the announcing and everything else. I, I never got on the mic. And when I did, once in a while, I'd say, uh, we'll be right back. We're going to take an <laughs> intermission. We'll be right back. And that was it. That was it. It wasn't until I started, I got we got discovered by Motown. You know, I, we finally put a band together that, uh, that really worked and, with a singer. We got discovered by Motown. And, and, and when I went to, to Motown, I wrote the lyrics for a song called Does Your Mama Know About Me? And it was an interracial kind of thing. And, I, and it was a poem first. And I wanted the poem to be... Um, it was a poetry, poem about being mixed and, you know, does your mama know about me? Does she know what I am? Will she turn her back on me or accept me as a man? And uh, And so I had a a fellow musician, uh, composer, that he, he saw that. And he was trying to get Bobby, our singer, to sing his other songs. But when he saw my poem, he says, can I finish this? And I said, sure. So he took it home and put the music to it and he put a, wrote a bridge to it, you know. And, and so we got a hit song. Right away, we got a hit song. But as soon as we got with Motown, they started treating... Uh, Everybody like a musician. Well, I'm not the best musician. But, uh, and so when the, we recorded it, I wasn't even on the uh, album as a guitar player. 
I was on the album. I wasn't on the album, period. I was a writer. And that's when I found out writers, no respect for writers. I mean, you know, Hemingway, you know, uh, he had a hard time getting respect. <laughs> you know? Because writers, everybody, you, you, make it, you make it sound so easy that anybody could have wrote it. You know what I mean? I mean, that's what, oh, because uh, what you did, you, you did the Rubik's Cube. You did it. it. It works, you know. But it looks so simple. Oh, anybody can do that, you know. And that's what writing is. You know, they, they thought, uh, well, especially uh, the singers in that, you know, they didn't give a shit about who wrote the lyrics, you know. The fact is that they sang, and that's that's the main main thing with, with those guys. But, but while I was on the road with the Motown, I didn't go to the blues clubs because, uh, you know, I, I grew up in clubs. I wasn't really interested in, in, I knew how these guys played as good as they did. They had incredibly strong hands, <laughs> and that's all they could do is play lead guitar. You know, well, I was, I'm a poet more than anything. I was not a guitar player. And so I, I, I started going to Second City. Second City was the first improv club that I ever went to. And I, and I saw Peter Boyle on stage. I saw these great actors on, on stage in Chicago. And then, uh, and then I went to Vancouver. No, uh, San Francisco. That's when I saw uh, the committee. Well, the committee was like, whoa. I mean, all these great actors, Howard Hessman, and uh, all these great guys, uh, Godlip, uh, Carl Godlip, uh, Sellers, all, all these great actors. And so in my mind, being a musician, I could hear a song and, and learn it, you know, figure out what, it, what you had to do. And so comedy, I started doing that with jokes. I figured out how to, how to, how to do it that way. And then when I went to Canada, uh, went back to Canada. I got fired from Motown, went to back to work in the nightclubs, and I, I created a, an improvisational nightclub at a strip bar you know, with, the, with the girls as actresses. And that was a stroke of genius. In fact, uh, all the girls, none of them went on to become actresses. They could have, but they, you know, they stayed there for the money. Uh, but Cheech and I, uh, that's where we owned our act. Uh, in in the in the strip club, and Cheech was just a, a sideman. You know, he was like uh, uh, he he was actually hired to do the straight, uh, be the straight guy because I had another partner named Dave that had long hair. And we're two long hairs, and we needed one guy with short hair, and that was Richard. It was Cheech. And, but when we uh, when the group broke up, Cheech was the only one that wanted to keep doing it. And, uh, and so we hooked up together and became Cheech and Chong. And, of course, the rest is history. Yeah, tell me, I mean, how... It's so funny because, you know, you think about it. You, you guys were so huge. I mean, it's something that... But you come from Calgary. How was your path to become so big? I mean, were you just... Were you just you know, when I did when I did stand up, you know, we would play every shit gig. We would drive from Philly to like Ohio and be on the road for twelve days, and and some nights you'd be in a great hotel, some nights you'd be in like a converted trailer park, and it was just the grind. And you would drive five hours and get up on stage, but you did it because you loved it. How was your guys? How did you start building a following? Because you were in Calgary, 
And and that's not known, you know, like, you became huge in Hollywood. How did that all happen? Well, again, you know, we, we came from, I didn't know, we didn't, when, when I met Cheech up in Canada, no one knew what he was. You know, we, we didn't, had no idea that he was Mexican. He wouldn't let anybody know. It was Richard Mary was his name. We got back to L.A. Now we come down to L.A. because, you know, I, I wanted to be in L.A. I, I, I fell in love with Los Angeles when I was with Motown. And so, I, and I'd worked a few of the, the black clubs, so I, I knew I knew that we could get work in the black clubs as uh, as comedians because the black clubs it it pay you know twenty five thirty bucks or fifty bucks if you're lucky or a hundred bucks if you're really lucky you know we made we made a, a nice little uh, you know a bit of change you know uh, but what happened when we got to L A uh, the comedy clubs were fine you know the the freebies especially you know they loved us. But when we got the, we got hired by this this promoter, he wanted to. It was a dance club. He wanted to change. Wanted to start doing a little bit of comedy in it, and so he hired us. And we we thought we had a, like a steady gig, and and it was a dance club, and so the dancers had to stop dancing to watch our show, and they weren't they weren't a happy camper, you know, because <laughs> you know. They're, they're there to dance. They're not there to watch a couple of idiots, you know, on stage. And so our act never went over that well in the first show. And so we're backstage, and, you know, my instinct told me that, you know, we're not doing very well, Cheech. <laughs> there must be a character that you know that, you know, that everybody's going to jump on and, and love. And, and she said, well, there is one, but I'm not really into doing it. That's why it was kind of detrimental to the Latino, you know, the Chicano race. And I told him, I said, Cheech, come on, that's, that's, we're in that, that's our business. That's our job, you know? <laughs> and so he, he's, he did a bit called the, uh, the lowrider. He showed me a, a, a lowrider. And I said, and then I remembered a bit that black comedian named Sir Pineapple from Seattle used to do where he would sit in a car and pretend he was driving a car and then he'd, he'd wave and stop. You know, he would just do all the pantomime about, you know, peeping his horn and having a big guy come out of the car and look up at him, you know. And then, and then you know, it was very beautiful. And so I showed Cheech how to, how to do the, the car bit. And, and then so Cheech caught on right away. And next thing you know, we we discovered the lowrider, and then and then I was always doing the the hippie, you know, the the stoner, and and so together we we the first time we did the bit, I could feel the electricity in the air, because now you got a crowd that did not want to see us. Now you got a crowd sitting there; they can't get enough of us. You know, they loved it so much because we're right in Encino. We were in Encino, California. That lowriders, in fact, we got the character because one lowrider pulled up. We're outside the club and he pulled up in his lowrider. Hey, man, can you tell me where uh, uh, Encino? Uh, yeah, yeah. You can tell me where Encino is? Yeah, yeah you're on it, man. <laughs> 
this year. Oh, hey, thanks, man. Then he drove away. And she said, laugh. We laughed at each other. But then when we did it that night, you know, and Cheech goes, hey, man, hey, Red Brick, want a ride, man? Come on, hop in, you know. The crowd, everybody went, wow. Wow, they never saw that before. And and to Cheech's credit, you know, he we, we did it for, what, three, four movies? And then, and then it was over, you know, Cheech had grown up over, grown over out of it. And, uh, and when I look back at our, at our early show, you know, we were right now, we could, we couldn't do the same show anymore. You know, the way the political system is now and everything. You know, I was, when I was listening, whole, when I was listening to the album, I noticed that there was stuff that wouldn't, you couldn't get away with now in the, in, no. the, in, the, in the wedding album. But it's funny because as someone who's, I'm very open-minded, it's, this stuff's just funny. I mean, to me, it's not offensive at all. It's just, I mean, I'm no. listening to it. It's just funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what it was. We had the, we had the ability to, to do that, you know, because the whole point of comedy is to make people laugh. And the more ridiculous you laugh, that's why our, our comedy hit so many kids, because it's that age, you want to laugh. You don't give a shit about anything else, but you just want to laugh. You want to laugh hard. You want to laugh at stupid things. And, and, and not only laugh, but learn at the same time, you know. And, 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 and you can be funny. The first time I ever made love, the first time that I had my cherry broken, uh, I remember everything about it including the girl's name, which I won't mention because I know better. <laughs> but when we finished the first time, and I've been close to doing it with a few people, but I, growing up in the country, you know, it's not, uh, you got to be very careful, you know. And so I, I, I waited till I guess I was, 16, 17, when I finally uh, got my my first uh, bit. No, I was 18, 17. No, I was 17, 16, 16, I was 16 years old. Well, anyway, we did the deed. And then I laughed so hard because it was so funny. You know, that <laughs> the way everybody was, it was on the side of a hill. I remember trying to dig in my toes so I wouldn't slide down the hill. <laughs> and, 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 uh, and, and of course, the girl was not happy that I was laughing so hard. She couldn't, she never got the joke. But it was a, it was a, a celebration laugh like i did it i did it finally did it you know it wasn't my favorite way of making love uh thank god or i would have been fathering and so many kids around you know as it was i did one extra marital uh baby you know i was one of those i was a true musician i had my daughter at our wedding <laughs> no, you know i'm gonna ask you i gotta ask you something because you were talking about laughter and then you know and your character the hippie guy made so many people laugh how did you find our character where did it come from because it, it's 
you played it so well. But it's every character comes like as you said, Cheech didn't want to do that character, but then he did it. Where did you find the hippie guy? Where did that come from? His name is Strawberry. I was walking now, as I was in the process of changing the strip club into an improvisational club, I was in Vancouver at the time. They had a garbage strike. There's bags of garbage all over the streets, piled up in these neat piles. There's a light snowfall falling, and there was a street lamp right above this bag of garbage, uh, bags of garbage, that this hippie kid with long red hair, Old, long overcoat looked like a, a Dickens character. He had he had a long overcoat and the hair came down, and and he and he's sitting on the garbage and he goes, and you saw me looking at him and he goes, hey man, do you know where do you know where I could crash tonight? And I looked at him and I, and I said, yeah, maybe I do. And he goes, oh, that'd be great, man. And so I told him I'm putting a cl nightclub together, you know, an improv club. And I said, and, uh, yeah, I could, you know, you could stay there, uh, you know, until you get a place. You sleep in the light booth, you know. And he goes, oh, that'd be great, man. And so he became our light man, Strawberry. And, and because he had that stoner attitude <clears throat> he was a little bit slow in the lights when we needed blackouts and so everybody would be freezing in place and go, strawberry strawberry blackout <laughs> and and cheech cheech uh, at the time you know, that's when cheech joined the, the the group and and so cheech had a thing with strawberry David Graham had a thing with Strawberry. Strawberry was, he was the voice of reason. Like we'd do a bit, we'd try a new bit, and then we'd come backstage because he was working the lights from backstage. He would critique us. <laughs> he would say, oh man, that bit sucked, man. No, nobody laughed, man. That was embarrassing. Whoa. <laughs> And so Strawberry became such a such a character that when uh, when Cheech and I got together, boom! I, I I just grabbed that character because of his honesty, and and, and you know what? He changed. I, I went back years later. You know, of course, it was very monumental. Uh, you know, because. The people that started the improv club, you know, they're right off the street and, you know, we're just doing our thing. And so when Cheech and I made it to the big top, you know, all these people that had anything to do, you know, they they, they came up, you know, we, we had a little get together, you know, where we all get together. And so I met Strawberry and he changed 180 degree. He had those big brogan shoes. On. Before that, he was barefoot or sandals. He had these big lawyer-type shoes on. He was a businessman in short hair. Um, every, everything had changed. He had, he had changed. He would grown into an adult, you know. Uh, uh, but, and, and then I guess his hippie past was like, uh, it was totally in the past. But he was one of those guys that, when he became something, it was bigger than life. 
you know. And then and that's the way I found it. They they very seldom stay in that one mode, you know. You're like that for a teenager, then all of a sudden you're somebody else as you get older and someone else and so on. You know, he became his father, actually. Uh, he, he was funny, man. <laughs> he had a girlfriend. He used to attract really beautiful girls. And, and the girls were like ethereal kind of hippie, uh, you know, those almost like they're not even real. You know, they had little chiffon, little silky things to wear and incredible bodies and, and, and just young and gorgeous and hippie, hippie, hippie chicks for days. Yeah, that was that was an era. Now that era, you know, now you know, because you one, one, just the character you found that character. How did you guys get your first record deal? How did that come about? Because you know what's funny is I I listen to WMMR in Philadelphia, and every year they still play Santa Claus and his old lady. Oh, That's yeah. something that is played, and I look forward to it. I'm one of those people that I can I have Amazon Music. I can listen to anything, but I want to hear it on the radio because there's nothing like it's that. And it's Springsteen, Santa Claus is coming to town. Then it makes me feel like um, it's Christmas. When I lived in L.A. for 20 years, it was different. Here, you're driving and you hear that. When did you start deciding to record stuff? Did the record companies come after you? Was that Lou Adler? Or how did that happen? We did an open... No, no. We did like an audition for Warner Brothers at at the Troubadour. And uh, Cheech and I were regulars at the Troubadour, even though we never got paid. But we started, we got such a reputation that every Sunday, no, Monday, every Monday was a hootenanny night. And, uh, and, and what Cheech and I found out was that folk clubs were the best place to do comedy because the folk singers set everybody up. They got, they're quiet, they're listening, they're, they're mellow, you know what I mean? They're not having a party at their table, they're listening. And then you come on and do comedy, well, they're the best audience, you know, because anybody sit through some poor fucker with a guitar, you know, singing, you know, and, and, and sit there. And then after you applaud and want to hear more. Well, when we hit them with comedy, I mean, the the, the, the troubadour, they just lapped it up to to the point where they would phone me. I mean, we weren't getting paid. We had to actually, you had to. In the beginning, we had to stand in line uh, to sign up so we would be this, the good part, you know, to get, come on at a good night, a part of the night. And so if you were there early, you got to go on sixth, you know, and it would go backwards. And then, But opening up, they hardly had the doors open, you know, to be on the first on stage. And so if you were the sixth, you were the star area. And so that's what what we did at the, at the Troubadour. And, and then when Lou Adler came to, uh, he, he sort of sat in on the, uh, on the freebie that was done for the other guy, uh, Templeton, who, who was not interested in us. But we heard that Lou Adler was interested. He liked what he saw because he grew up in Boyle Heights and he was, uh, that's a Chicano area. So he, he, he knew all about that. Plus, he, he was a master promoter. He did the Monterey Pop Festival, and he did all these masterful guys, you know, and that's what we needed. And so uh, we went to see Lou, and Lou says, what can I do for you? Well, I looked at his records, you know, and and I had 
I hadn't thought about it until we got to his office and I said, you know what? Uh, I like to, we'd like to make a comedy record. And Lou says, great. What do you need? I said, $1,000. And Lou started writing out the check. I says, well, make it $2,000. There's two of us. <laughs> <laughs> and, so, and so Lou said, okay. And so he, and I says, and I need a tape recorder. I need a little tape recorder because you need something. You know, when people say, what do you need? Come up with something, you know. I, I learned that real fast. And so we got a little tape recorder and then we went into a little back room uh, to rehearse. And, uh, and it was during the rehearsal that we created Dave's Not Here because uh, Cheech went out, he got in costume everything like we do on stage and he went out and he knocked on the door and I was supposed to open the door and let him in. But I wasn't sure if the tape recorder was working. And besides I was behind the console, you know, the door is way over there. And so I, I instead of opening the door and letting him in, when he knocked, I get, who is it? And so then we started the bit. He goes, it's me, man. I got the stuff and so on. But I would never let him in. I just because I, I I see the humor, the tension, the humor, and so I kept him out there as long as I could keep him out there. And then when I finally let him in, he was ready to kill me. <laughs> but but uh, we by that time we had recorded probably the most iconic uh, Cheech and Chong uh, a bit out there today, and it was done no rehearsal, just ad lib right from the beginning. And then when we recorded the real, the, the one that was on the record, uh, we, we went into the studio, we had a whole crew, you know, we had the engineers and everybody else, like a, a whole setup. But uh, the, the day's not here, it took about two, two and a half, three minutes. And, and we got there with the whole studio. And so Lou said, you got anything else? And so we had to make up shit on the spot, which we did. We did uh, Blind Melon Children. I think we did another one, but right then. And so that's when I found out, you know, first of all, I told Lou, we don't need a big studio. All we need is an engineer and a little mixed on room, like we rehearsed a bit. And, uh, and that's way Cheech and I did our record career for that, that lasted almost, almost 10 years. I think we did nine, nine albums. <clears throat> Now, how far, how hard, okay, so you had the albums, so then you transitioned to these movies, which anyone, I'm 50, I'm 58, and we all watched the Cheech and Chong movies. We all love the Cheech and Chong movies. I mean, we remember laughing, and that's when we were, for a lot of us, it's our first time experiencing pot. So it was, it was cool to us. But how did the movie deals come about? Was it because your comedy was doing so big, and then Hollywood, you were in Hollywood, they just said, hey, let's make a movie with these guys? No. Not at all. It never works that way. No, what happened, I got tired of missing summer. Because by that time, we were like an international uh, act. And we'd go to Australia every chance we got, which was during their winter, we'd be in Australia. It'd be summer here, but it'd be winter there. We're in Australia. We'd come back here, it'd be winter here. And so we missed three summers of going to Australia. And so I, I, I said, nah, I, don't, I, I, I said, we better get off the road. We better do a movie. <clears throat> and so I started, I, I was writing a, a movie with another writer in the meantime. And, and it was going to be an animated uh, 
movie at first, you know, we talked about it, you know, but I, uh, but then Lou got involved uh, making the movie deal. And once Lou Adler got involved, he, he worked his way up. Uh, we had a uh, Floyd Matrix hired to do, direct. He, he had done uh, uh, American Graffiti and a few, few other of those hot rod shows. But Teach and I never hit it off with Floyd. In fact, we never hit it off with any, any writer or producers ever. Uh, and so then uh, I, uh, uh, I wrote a song called Up in Smoke. And, and when I played it for Cheech and Lou, Cheech says, that's the title. That's the movie, Up in Smoke. And then with the title, we, st- we went, started writing. I started writing the, the, the rest of the movie. And uh, and we kind of wrote as we went along, you know, uh, like we did our records, you know, we'd come up with an idea that day or in the truck or whatever, and we'd say we'd tell Lou, okay, here here's what we're going to do. We'd shoot it, shoot the sequence, and 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 then, but to Lou's credit, he he got us Robert Altman's uh, movie guys, and Robert Altman was uh, very famous for doing improvisational uh, movies where mash and all that but a lot of it was improv you know you, the, the actors wrote the, the lines basically and so uh, we got a lot of robert altman's people involved in up in smoke and then and unfortunately it was up in smoke that broke up cheech and chong and lou adler because uh lou when we couldn't get along with the the one director lou said well then you know paramount would feel right if, if, if he directed it, Lou Adler directed it. And he said, you know, and he, it was like, of course, I'll just direct whatever you guys write, you know. And so uh, I, 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 I hate to blow my own horn, but no one else will, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and so, so I, I uh, really have to take credit for writing most of the Up and Smoke. You know, but I also give credit to the actors like uh, Strother Martin, you know, who, who they wrote their own bits. We'd give them a scenario. And then these actors, because you talk about improvisational actors, these were the best. Stacy Keach as uh, Sergeant Stadenko. He, he wrote his own lines. Uh, I, we, I wrote some for the, the, the minor people. Uh, Toyota, the, the, the one, but the whole plot of the movie, you know, the band made out of weed, I wrote all that. I wrote that, I wrote most of the movie, you know, if not all the movie. And, and, and then Lou put it together, but he, he thought he had his own, he had, he came up with his idea, but then, you know, and then it showed you that Lou really was not, <laughs> not the movie guy. And the movie, the ending he had, he he showed it to us uh, in the rough cut. You never want to do that in the movie. You know, it's like a lawyer. You never want to ask a question unless you know what the answer is going to be. Right. <laughs> and so that was that with Lou. And so when I saw, you know, his pathetic attempt at, at the ending, <clears throat> I uh, that's when we broke the movie. <clears throat> and uh, I took over as the director. And then after that, I directed every movie after that. You know. 
Did you did you just when you directed him? Did you just follow your instinct? Because it's a lot to direct. People don't understand because you're directing yourself, which I know you're a performer, you're creative, so we're much harder on ourselves. You know, people can say, "Oh, that was great." And we'll go, uh, you know, we you know. But how was how did you just start? Did you just go by instinct and know that? Well, this, it was the same as uh, Dave's not here. You know, that bit. It's the same thing. What it is, you get characters. And then you find out a way to make those characters funny. You see. Uh, we're, we're doing a, a documentary right now. And it's, it's being done. But I, I've got no creative input into it. And the, that's the way the documentarians wanted to do it. Uh, I have a hard time watching anything that I'm in that I don't have something to do with it. You know, the writing or the directing. Uh, I have a hard time with, with that. You know, in fact, uh, I'm in uh, that, uh, the 70s show, for instance, uh, was very easy. They wrote, wrote for my character, the writers did. And I never ad lived one line in that, that 70s show. I know how to act uh, when, I, when I'm a bit character, but when, when it's on me as, Cheech and Chong, you know, then I have to take over. I have to uh, be the guy because uh, uh, it, it, it the, the inspiration comes from a very, very personal, deep space. And, and it's not, it's unlike anything you're going to see anywhere. It, it comes right out of the well, you know, of, of uh, the, the creative well. And, uh, and and that's I've been doing it all my life, and uh, I don't see any reason to, to change that. You know, like right now we we like I said we got a documentary, but I haven't seen it. I haven't seen any of it. And uh, my son Paris tried to uh, inject a, a little bit in there, but uh, he got turned down by you know the, the movie's locked down. And the thing is with movies, I, and I, I totally understand. That's why. Uh, Lou and I split after up in smoke is because you can't have two cooks in the kitchen. You know, it's got to be one one guy, and and uh, and, uh, and and that's the way it's been with me. I'm I'm not the best businessman in the world. In fact, I'm probably very low on on the, the total pole that way. But on the other hand, it was because of uh, my creative input that. Uh, in, in a way, poverty really promotes creativity <laughs> because when you when you need to make some money, you know, you need to get people laughing hard, you know, uh, then you take care of business. But I've never, all my life, I've never really done, like I said earlier about the Mita, you know, where you have a meeting where everybody gets together and you work out whatever problems you have together. And then you have a big party after to celebrate and pay people off with, with, with parties or food or something like that. That's more my style, you know. And uh, I leave the money-making things up to my wife, who is excellent. My son also, who is very excellent. And, and so they take care of that side of it for me. But I, I, uh, I, I can't 
bridge the two, you know, the money-making thing and the creative thing. Uh, it, it, to me, if you, if you do a very funny, creative movie, then the money will take care of itself. Now, we've been robbed, obviously. You know, we got robbed with Up and Smoke. But the good news is it kept us in the business, you see. A lot of times, you know, people make that one movie, make all that money, and then they're out of the business. You know, they're all trying to make a fortune doing shit that they, they have no business doing. <laughs> you know, and eventually they end up going, whoa, you know, I better get back to where I, where, you know, where I know what I'm doing. So I don't know. I, um, I'm, I'm just a creature of, of, of happenstance, you know, whatever happens, I just go along with it. Well, you know, up in smoke, we were talking about that. You know, you guys had the persona, the marijuana smokers. When did you personally start smoking marijuana? Was it something that you learned before the character? Or is it something that once you started doing the character, you started smoking more? I've got, I've got my early pot experiences from a jazz musician. In fact, in Calgary, where I grew up, the only nightlife was a, was a privately owned jazz club. And, and if you were a musician, you got in free if you brought your axe, you know, you brought your instrument with you, they let you in. And so I hung out at this jazz club. And it was one of the founders of the jazz club that uh, uh, actually brought me a present when I was 17 years old and I was uh, still in school, uh, barely. I got turned on to Lenny Bruce. He brought me an album, a Lenny Bruce album and, uh, and a marijuana uh, cigarette, you know, a, a joint. And I put the joint in my pocket, <laughs> took the record. Thank you for the record. And so he lit up his own joint. And then he handed me, and it was the first time I ever smoked. I took a toke, and I, I've never been able to duplicate that high since. <laughs> it was one of the greatest highs of my life. I heard music for the first time. I've never heard music like that. And I can still remember the tune. It was Ornette Coleman's Lonely Woman. I'll never forget that. I've got a good memory when it comes to uh, things like that. Uh, because uh, so much of my life has been very ordained. You know, it's been very spiritually led. You know, I've been led into these areas. And, uh, and so I remember, I remember every, every little detail, especially getting high the first time because I took that Lenny Bruce record home with the joint and then I would take a couple of tokes and put it out. I still do that now. Uh, that's, that's what this is. I'll, I'll, I'll light up, I'll take a couple of tokes and then I'll put it in one of my joint holders and, and I'll, I'll, I'll sit it down, you know, and, uh, and, and it, it'll go up by itself. And then in a, in a few moments later, you know, oh, I'll light it up again and smoke again, you know. What? Uh, but my, my weed, I was, like I said, I was 17 at the time. I wasn't sure about it. And it was a big secret in Calgary. And so no one, no one smoked. And, and in the band, no one 
would tell the other band members, oh yeah, you know, we, we met one time at in the alley, <laughs> the organ player, the piano player, and myself, we, oh, oh, you see, you're here too. <laughs> and, and we used to uh, meet, uh, you know, getting our, our stash, getting our joint. Because back in the day, there was uh, dealers that would sell indi individual little pinners, little marijuana dust joints, <laughs> and, and they cost a buck a piece. And the guy would, you know, you roll up 10 and make $10. You know, $10 back then was, you know, get you a couple of meals, you know. And so I, uh, that, that's, that's how I, uh, it was always music or comedy, the reason to smoke, you know. It was never, I never had the luxury of having enough, so much pot that I could just light up whenever I felt like it, you know. It was like uh, that my little joint, and because it wasn't addicting, you never saw me looking around the ashtray for butts, you know, or anything <laughs> like that. I gotta ask you because you know you you you're 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 the pot smoker and the partner. What? Tell me, just tell me some stories about what when you guys were at the top of your success. I mean, like when you were huge in the eighties. What was the L.A. party scene like? I mean, it must have been insane because I moved out in like 2000. I moved out there, but you hear about the what was it like for you guys? The group people always trying to give you pot. I mean, what was it like when you would go to parties? It was more at the at, in those days. My brother-in-law was uh, the drummer for the Three Dog Night band, and the Three Dog Night actually seen the whole improv group that I had in Canada. Because Floyd, they were up there playing the, the big arenas, and we, we had our little strip joint going, club going down, which we opened up. The last time we, we put the group together was for the Three Dog Night. They never saw the show. And so uh, we were, <clears throat> when we came to L.A. because of my brother-in-law and that, and we hooked up with those kind of rock and roll people, you know, Lou Adler and, you know, and the, and the Roxy and the, and the, uh, the Johnny, what, what, what's it, the, the other club? Rainbow? Uh, the, huh? The Rainbow? The Rainbow and the other one, the Whiskey. Whiskey and Go-Go. Uh, you know, we, can I, I, I never, but Cheech hung with those people a lot. And, uh, and of course, there's the parties. Well, the Lou Adler party when we signed with Lou, uh, the first thing we did was invited was got invited to a party. Lou Adler was having at his house, and the Stones were there, some of the Beatles were there, uh, Jack Nicholson uh, was the in crowd. They're all there, and and when I was there, I, I walked into the. I walked into the. I, I asked Lou. I said, "Where can I smoke this big, fat, stinky joint?" And Lou says, "In the bedroom. Go in the bedroom." So I walked in the bedroom. I lit up the joint, and I look over, and there's John Lennon sitting on the floor, not on the bed, on the floor. And I, John, I walked over and handed him the joint. And he goes, "No, no, no, man. I'm, I got immigration problems. I, I, I got. I can't smoke right now." Okay. And so then Rod Stewart walks in. Rod Stewart's in the mirror and he's 
clapping his hair up, you know. <laughs> so I walked over and said, Brad, you want to get high? And he goes, no, no, I, my voice, my voice. And, and so then I, I put out the joint, and then I, I walked out into the hallway, and I ran into Jack Nicholson. And Nicholson had just did a movie, um, A Few Young Men, no, A Few Good Men. Yeah. Remember that one? And, and in the movie, he plays an army guy, and he, and he's in the in the mirror. He's combing his hair, and Jack's got the real thin hair. And it was a military cut. There's nothing to comb. But the scene went on for a good ten minutes, and and I'm stoned, and, and I'm, I got Jack Nicholson, and I said, Jack, Jack, that scene in the movie where you're combing your hair, and I said, you took like forever. I said, and, and you got no hair to comb. It's weird. I said, was that ad lib? Was, was that improv? And Jack just looked at me, and he said, "Excuse me, you're in my way." And he just he he, he brushed me aside, and and he went into the bedroom, I guess, to smoke his own joint or or whatever. Now, through, through your marijuana, you, you came out with a bong line, and that got you in legal trouble. Tell my listeners what happened with that. Well, what I learned, I learned a couple of things. First of all. Just because you're famous, you don't escape racism, you know. And and when they went looking, see what happened. Bush was getting ready to uh, attack Iraq. Bush was so ready to do something against these terrorists, you know. And and so his his war crowd said that well, you you're going to need some diversion, you know. Like Nixon had the hippies. See, if it wasn't for the hippies, uh, the war would have probably would have been over sooner. But uh, the hippies kind of kept the right wing guys, you know, going against these anti-war protesters and so on. And so when it came to Bush's Iraqi war, they needed hippies. They needed, but there was none around. The only thing that was around was my bomb company, and and what. But the Joe Biden had wrote a law, you know, outlawing paraphernalia, <clears throat> making it a federal offense to to deal with paraphernalia, drug paraphernalia. And so when they went after me, what they did, they knew they were treading on, on you know, uncharted territories, you know, going after pipe maker, you know, but that was all they had. And so they 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 put out a hit. On, on the uh, on the people that made uh, cigarette papers for the joints, and what they did, they put out a, a lie saying that that millions billions of dollars were being funneled to the uh, Al terrorist through the sale of bongs. They said the bongs sales were in the billions of. of, of, of uh, they're in the billions of dollars and and blah 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 and, and I'm like what are you serious <laughs> and, and sure enough next uh, thing you know they're they're coming after me <laughs> and next thing you know I'm I'm uh, I'm in jail because uh, everybody got house arrest except me. And, and, and it took me a while to realize the name Chong 
See, they're at war with China. They're at war with Korea. You know, America's at war with uh, Al-Qaeda, you know, the terrorist. And and if you got a name, Chong, you know, it's uh, jail time, basically. And so I went in front of a judge, and I tried to weasel my way out. You know, I tried to tell him, you know, that, uh, you know, I'm... I, I know I did wrong, selling bongs and blah blah blah, but uh, you know I'm now I'm involved in teaching kids how to dance salsa, and, and I and I try to be a good and I am I, I'm a I'm a very uh, but what they did I I see what they did they I got a juvenile record now so they're not supposed to look at your juvenile record but come on you know the, the FBI the cops they look at everything you know there's no you know they don't they don't follow rules they never have you know what can we get on this guy that can put him in jail and, and that's what they did they they looked at my juvenile record they found out that i had a a brush a brush with the law and and that my name is chong and therefore i should do nine months in jail and and the thing is i even had a chance to get a pardon from from uh biden i mean from uh, uh Obama, because Cheech went there to accept the Chicano whatever achievement award, and while he was there, he mentioned to uh, Obama, who knew who Cheech and Chong were, by the way, because he was a, a dope smoker from Hawaii. <laughs> so, so he knew Cheech and Chong right off the bat. And so he told Cheech, he said, tell him to fill out the forms, and I'll, I'll definitely give him a pardon. You know? But I... I look at the bus now as a, a badge of honor, and 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 it's given me a platform in order to. I helped really. Uh, it helped get uh, pot legal because uh, I, I brought attention to the fact that you know you're putting guys in jail for a water pipe. That's not even his company, you know. It, there's obviously a reason why you're putting him in jail, and it, and it sure doesn't have anything to do with protecting the nation from anybody, you know. And and because I was such a, a beloved uh, comedian uh, for all these years, you know, with the movies and everything, you know, it was like, what are you doing? And in fact, it kind of backfired on him, you know. And, well, but it did. We we got illegal. <laughs> what was it? What was it like in jail? I know your your roommate was the Wolf of Wall Street. That must have been uh, interesting. Jail was probably well. What I did, I turned it into a spiritual retreat. Purposely, I had been studying uh, spirituality basically all my life. Uh, once I got into the jazz world of jazz, that's where you're going to find some very. Uh, beautiful spiritual beings, you know, because when you achieve that level of musicianship, you know, it's like a doctorate in, in, in humanity because jazz really, jazz music itself, what it is, it's interpreting music using intelligence. And when you use intelligence in anything, uh, math or, or any of the, the <clears throat> you know the the, uh, the arts <clears throat> you're, you're you're running into spirituality because
because that's where it all comes from and that's that's what i what i learned and and what i what i learned in, in with the spiritual i i got turned on spirituality really young and it's it's always stayed with me because when i was a kid <clears throat> i never had a, a mom and dad like everybody else uh, my mother was in a sanitarium my dad had just got out of the war and he had issues and so we went I, I went into the hospital because i had a little bit of a pleurisy in my lung and that's because of my mother had tb and so all the family was you know we were vetted really closely looked at and they found a little spot on my lung so i ended up in the hospital for about a year and then i got out of the hospital went right into a orphanage right into a salvation army home and so and, and in salvation army home uh, everything starts off with a hymn with a with a, a christian <laughs> it was a little militant you know kind of awkward christian soldiers marching off to war it was that kind of thing but it, it put the emphasis on on the bible and on on on, on the rule of uh of spirituality of, of of that 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 i touched on that and being young enough and then growing up in the country when my mother got out of the hospital my dad you know was got a, a the little home in the country the only entertainment we had see back see that's in the 40s uh the only entertainment anybody had back then was the church uh was the only reason you got dressed up you put on your sunday school vest and and we went to sunday school and so i, I and so when when you're that young in sunday school uh it it'll take the the power of prayer for instance i learned that really really young and and respected to, to this day because uh I, I owe everything all my successes uh, was divinely inspired and and, uh, and i I've, I've known that and I and I've never got got out of it and so when I went to prison it was like and there is a section of prisons that are devoted really mainly to the study of, of the bible and and and, and god that's how that's how those guys maintain you see you can you if if you don't have that to go to to lean on then uh you're in trouble you know you won't last but in order to last that's what i did well i, I and i always looked at like Nelson Mandela you know who did something like 18 years in in hard labor breaking rocks and 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 in being a black man in South Africa in jail you know and, and yet he came out of it became the premier of uh, South America of uh, South Africa and so i i looked at that and, and then i also i had one bad half hour in jail and that was everything was fine I, uh vanity fair sent a limousine to take me to prison Uh, and so I, i i arrived in prison in a limousine you know and fanfare and everything else but that night when i had to crawl into that little bunk bed the bottom bunk and i had a, a guy with a sleep problem on top on the top bunk and i could hear all the moans and groans and sounds of it was like 
you know, 200 men in a, in, a, in a dormitory, so you can imagine the sounds. Uh, it freaked me out because I went from the beautiful Palisades home, you know, for the king-size bed, the gorgeous wife, to a little bunk bed. I turn over, and there's a cement wall there, you know, <laughs> and reality hit. And like I said, and then I heard the key turn. I heard the, the door being locked, and I got a little claustrophobic, you know, thinking, oh, my, something happens, you know, that door is locked. I, there's no escape, you know, that kind of thing. Panic went through my, my mind. But then I felt the warmness uh, come over me. And it was like a warm, like a, like a blanket. And, 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 I, and I just felt comfort. I felt the spiritual, which I felt all my life growing up. I could feel it. The, the minute you, you put your thoughts on a spirituality, there's a warmth that comes over your whole being because this is really who we are and and uh, and, and we're, we're here in, in, in a human form to experience to experience everything and that, that's what I was experiencing that, that that put me that jail put me as close to God as I've, I've ever been and when you're that close, uh, the, the miracles that happen, they happen before your eyes. I mean, I, 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 I ended up with a, I went to the dining room just for the experience, but because I was the, the, one of the elite famous prisoners, we had our own special uh, area where this golf caddy named Eric Larson, he's on the tour now, he cooked, him and his buddies cooked a gourmet vegetarian meal every night and we ate in the TV room and so we had our own private dining room with a bank of television sets on the wall <laughs> we could watch sports we could watch anything we want and we ate from the garden the vegetable garden and the, the healthiest food I've nine months I came out of there looking like a movie star I had a tan I had the right, when the, the inmates, they gave me a haircut that lasted two hours. And the, and the best barber in town, he's like, every little hair. I, I come out of there and I'm tan, buffed from working out. And my wife looked at me and go, whoa. And just, we got a video of it. There's a AKA Tommy Chong video showing me getting out of, out of jail because they shot us. It shot me going into jail and shot me coming out. And so uh, so that that experience probably was nine months. It was probably the most uh, influential for my life, for, 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 for me, because everything fell into place. I mean, my wife, for instance, uh, she, she cried, you know, when, when I went in and then and then we, we discussed that we got a holding, we got real estate holdings in Canada. And so she went up to Canada and parlayed the holdings that we had, the house that we had, you know, we paid cash for it, into two uh, 20 unit apartment buildings, two. And uh, two houses that she picked.
stitched up in nice areas and flipped uh, while, while I was in jail. All this when I was in jail. More money. Right now, we're still getting it. That that it was because I was out of the, you know, it was no longer, I was no longer the breadwinner. She was in there uh, raking it in. And when I got out of jail, I went right up there. And she, uh, and we stayed at one of the, the nice homes that she had bought, you know. There was no bed or anything, so we bunked out in the, in the front room next to the fireplace. But it was like, I, I was so rewarded. Now, here's this gorgeous creature of mine making more money than I made. And, oh, you talk about someone that was blessed. There's a blessing. I mean, every, every day I, I look at her. Every day, it's, it's it's amazing. Oh, everybody's amazed. We're in a restaurant the other day, and the guy came over to me, and, and he was drunk, and he knew who we were, and, and he and he knelt down and he kissed my ring like it was I was a pope. <laughs> and then he then he looks at Shelby and he goes, "You are so beautiful." No, she goes, and she goes, "Oh, I think." He goes, "No, no, no. You don't understand." You guys have been together for over 50 years, and look at you. You're so beautiful. And, and, and I, you can't argue with that. What are you going to say? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at pictures of her now, and, and, uh, and she's been in my life ever since she was 16 years old. And the reason we never we, we, we stayed together was that I was married. And so she thought that I was safe, you know. She, I could never fall in love with her. I was married, happily married, and we were just friends. We were just going to be friends until she, till we did acid one night, and 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 then she got pregnant, <laughs> and and we haven't been, we haven't never, we've never been apart other than you know, we had to be apart, you know, when I went to jail. But other than that. I mean, that's it. That's that's my life. You've lived a great life. I got to ask you though, what's in the future? I know in the '90s show is that is that all wrapped now? That's coming out, or what's up with that? Uh, I'm shooting it tomorrow. Actually, I, I shoot another episode tomorrow. It uh, they're starting off like it's it's uh, it's an unknown show. You know, they don't know it's going to be a success and blah blah blah, and they're, and they're lowballing. The shit out of me, <laughs> <You know? laughs> but but it's okay because my part's so so simple. The future, I gotta tell you, man. I'm I'm really excited because I've been, like I say, I've been blessed in so many ways. I, I'm I'm blessed now with uh, with some ideas that. Uh, that is going to uh, help humanity in, in such a way. When I was in, not only just in prison, but when I got out, when I'm sitting here, you know, in, in the, uh, every once in a while, I'll, I'll, I'll zone in on certain things, you know. Uh, my son, he, he keeps me he keeps me off Twitter. For a while there, I was going too crazy on Twitter, and so. He, he, he pulled me off that. And my job really is to come up with 
solutions to uh, to our our situations because it's kind of ridiculous this day and age and with the kind of well especially when we have our artificial intelligence you know the only thing I, I heard about artificial intelligence was kind of negative you know where people are saying well you know everybody's going to you know pretty soon you you don't have to do anything you know everything will be done for you and that's wrong <laughs> <laughs> that's bad pretty soon all you all all the whole world is going to be looking for recreation at least some of us you know but that's always been the way there's never been a chance a time when there wasn't very wealthy people on the planet and very very poor people on the planet that's the nature of our our, our, our existence you know and and that's not going to change but what can change is uh, our our game our, our what we want in life see that's what i like about the south american mita you know where you get together and you help everybody and oh by the way what they were helping they had a instead of tearing down this house in the south america they move them because they're small little they're like little boats almost you know little uh, maybe a two-bedroom with the kitchen, kind of little bungalow. And then, so they put them on skids. And, and then with the oxen and the people and everything else, they pull these houses to where they want to, to the new location, you know. And this this one was by the, by the water. They're going to pull it. They got a space for the water. And so they don't tear anything down and rebuild it. What they do, they move it. And that's where they, they, they need all the people to help move move uh, move their houses around. I can see I see the future. That's what I see with the future. Is we use the artificial intelligence, the computers, to show us how to grow food, for instance. Uh, to feed the planet because that was the other thing they did when they're moving the house their 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 staple of food was potatoes and so what they did in order they had a feast and and, and what they did they they dug up they dug a big hole and then they put the potatoes in the hole and then they get the burning material on top of it and so they baked the potatoes in this big hole, and then they put, I guess, uh, um, seaweed, kelp, stuff like that, burns, and, and, and they roast the potatoes in, in the big hole. And, 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 that's, and then after they pull the, um, they dig, it, dig, it up, dig up the potatoes again, and they're all cooked, and then they put the, the spice and the sauce and everything else. It looks so good because I grew up in potatoes. I, I see us combating uh, climate change to the point where, where we do eliminate the need for fossil fuel. See, there is reason why the oil was stuck so far underground. We weren't supposed to be using oil <laughs> to burn, you know. That's why it was stuck where it was, see. Uh, the way God designed the universe, the sun, 
It gives you all the energy you need. You got to learn how to use it. But it's there and it's cheap. <laughs> you know, you don't have to dig anything. All you have to do is just be in an area where where the sun shines, and and the water. We've learned how to deal with water, excess of water, and we've learned how to deal how to uh, get our energy now out of the wind, the wind, the waves, the tide, all that has power, and and then now with the electric cars and vehicles, pretty soon there won't be humans in wars anymore. They'll be fought with drones, like they're doing now, like the Ukraine. The the war in Ukraine is a modern war. What they did, they get all the innocent people they can out of the area, put them in areas where they're safe, destroy whatever buildings and everything else they can, because you need to destroy them in order to rebuild them. And when you rebuild them, now you rebuild them into modern uh, technology where the power lines are underneath. They're not going to start forest fires or anything else. And so we're coming into this area of, of our life where we have to learn how to not just get along and how to help each other, but everything has to be a meta. And, and what you really want to do with your population is to educate them. See, that's what you want to do. Education is so important. You're right. And we need to up the education. I mean, it's so important. Yes, yes. And if you, if you notice in China, uh, the communists, it, 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 it won't last. The communist rule won't last. It eventually will uh, die with, 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 like everything else that dies, you know, when it's no longer useful, you see. Because back in the day, the Chinese were, were still, Chinese are way ahead of us, always have been, you know. The Chinese, uh, my people, have, they discovered acupuncture uh, way, way, way back in the day, you know. They, the marijuana, cannabis was always used to cure cancer back, back in the day back thousands of years ago, you know, cannabis is never illegal. It was always a, a medicine. It wasn't until uh, America, the Puritans come up with this, this way of, of enslaving the indigenous people that they, they came up with laws against whatever medicine they were using. All of a sudden it's against the law, you know, to do that. It's against the law to be Mexican. It's against the law to be, be black. It's all that crap, you know, that that's where that we're getting out of that we're, we're getting out of that and we're, we're getting more into what i see is we're here for a couple of reasons one is to repopulate the planet that that's why we're there now we can't overpopulate and that that explains the the gay the homosexual because you can have love and everything else, but they're not going to repopulate the planet. And so you need you need those tribes to keep the population down. But the heterosexual uh, ones, that's their job. Keep, keep getting, uh, you know, the healthy uh, humans to, to go on with it. There's no need to fight or to, to kill or to hurt anybody. Uh, and other than moral issues, you know, where we have to l learn right from wrong and everything else, you know, 
Uh, there's a lot of things going on, especially with AI, artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence, it's given us a computer. It's given us the, uh, the phone, the iPhone. I mean, in my lifetime, can you imagine in my lifetime, I saw the advent of the telephone, of the, of the, of the electric car now. You know, I tried to build an electric car. I tried to build an electric bike years ago. And I was just, I never had the battery or the expertise. But I, 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 had, the, I had the foresight. I saw it coming. I saw it coming. And this is what I see now. I see recreation as our form of, of income, our form of, uh, of, um, of spreading the moral code. See, the human life, there are rules that if you follow the rules, you will lead a long, happy, productive life. Um, no, the reason we also got to remember, I, I mean, no, some of us know that that uh, eternity is real. Uh, we are eternal beings, our, our, our spirits. Uh, we are eternal beings. We're that energy that has always been on in this physical universe and the spiritual universe. Uh, there's two because one you can't have one without the other and so you need uh, in order to have down you have to have up <laughs> exactly <laughs> you know no if there's nothing in the spiritual world there has to be a world where there's everything and that's what we are in the physical world there's everything in the spiritual world I, I realize the opposite of everything is nothing so the spiritual world is so microscopic is that it can it can have universes in there, uh, countless universes in in, in uh, area that has no no uh, nothing uh, to to make it expand, for instance. Uh, but we are our souls are eternal. Now we don't know everything. We're not supposed to know everything because we were evolving. That's the whole thing about evolving. Like, if you look at early man, they had no idea that the Earth went around. <laughs> they thought Earth was flat. You know, and if you sail too far, you'd fall off the edge. You know, and when you think about it, there's still people on Earth that think that way. Oh yeah, it's crazy. Now I got to ask you though. You've you're, you've given so much insight today and so much wisdom, and I love that. But I got to ask you, can you do me a favor? Can you tell me a great Hollywood story that you encounter? Because I always love when people have a great, great story. Something that happened to you that just sticks with you. A Hollywood story. Or something in your career that just was one of those, oh my God, I've made it. Or just something that was just something you never thought would ever happen to you. I guess my, 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 oh my God moment was I was playing in the Vancouver's that was our band. By the way, our band 
<laughs> you talk about comedians. How did you get, you know, people say, how did you get into comedy? Well, I hung up with black guys that made you laugh so much. Because what I found out about the black race was that this is how they made it through. Uh, yeah, yeah, some got lynched. A lot of them got tortured, beat, and everything else. But the, the bulk of them made it through with humor. It was through humor. That's why the black comedians are top of the world. Because it was it was the black. I... When, when I got involved in, when I found out, first of all, when I found out how the blues, the simple blues hit me, it was like, oh, now that's what I want to play. That's the music I want to do. And so I, so I, I, I didn't do, I, I, I never wanted to become a guitar player, but I, I, I could play guitar. I, in fact, anything I do in my life, I never wanted to really be it. I just became it. I could do it, and I enjoy it. But what I I had an uh, an encounter with Jimi Hendrix, the great Jimi Hendrix. Now I've been doing some research on on Jimi, and I found out that that uh, we have a lot in common. You know, he was. Uh, uh, a guitar player, you know, he was trying to learn how to play guitar, and he found Guitar Shorty, another blues guitar player. Well, I met Guitar Shorty around the same time as Jimmy. In fact, but I was older than Guitar Shorty, and and uh, no, but I guess we're about the same age. He's, he he passed away anyway. Uh, but guitar Guitar Shorty, he was a black guy that could play guitar. Really good. Played the blues, the hell out of the blues, but it wasn't good enough to play. Guitar Shorty had an act where he would literally, he had a long guitar cord attached to his amp, and he would, he would run and dive off the stage with his guitar and then do a, 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 a roll, a body roll, when he hit the ground and jump up and keep playing and do the splits. But literally, he, I've seen him jump off the, like, like a six-foot stage, you know, that was six foot high, and land on the ground and do a roll. And, you know. <laughs> I got to know Shorty, and uh, and then I I, I asked, uh, <laughs> I asked, no one has ever seen. There's no tape of him. There's nothing. There's no proof that he did that. And then, he, of course, he quit doing it as he got older. What the fuck am I doing? <laughs> <laughs> but my, my, my the story I'll never forget was we're in England. We're backing up uh, Chris Clark. There's a friend, Barry Gordy's girl. He was trying to make her a star. <clears throat> and our band was there. And as a reward, we, we had a gig in a, in a little uh, club called The Speakeasy. And we're playing there, and there's no one there. No one came. No one knew who we were. And then all of a sudden, the door opens. <clears throat> Jimmy Hendrix walks in with a, looked like a peacock, you know, with his flamboyant shirts and his hair and everything. And he walks up to the stage, and he calls me by name. And he goes, hey, Tommy. Hey, mind if I sit in? And... 
my urge, my comedic urge was uh, maybe the last set, Jimmy. <laughs> <laughs> but because uh, we're working on some tunes, man. No, so so right away I said, yeah, and I took out my guitar, and he goes, no, he's I want to play bass. Wow. He's I'll play bass. And so the poor bass player, you know, he the bass player had to give his bass up to Jimmy. Jimmy sat there and played the hell out of the bass. I played guitar. Eddie Patterson, our other guitar player, our lead guitar player, he was, we, we were in heaven. We're up there, we're playing. And we played so long, the owners of the club pulled the plug and said, okay, you guys out of here, you know. <laughs> and, and then we went back to the hotel to party with Jimmy. Well, Jimmy never came out of the bathroom. <laughs> he stayed in the bathroom the whole time. And of course, he shot up and everything else. And then when he left, we didn't even see him leave. But he was so popular that girls were climbing up the elevator shaft to get to our rooms to, to, to get a piece of Jimmy. That's how popular he was. And so we're riding in the limousine, one of the Beatles limousines that they, they had used during one of the shoots, you know, you know, with the yellow submarine or something. And now we just played with Hendrix. We're riding in the, the Beatles limousine and we're looking at each other saying, this is crazy. And then someone said, Hendrix, eh? And then for some reason, I said, blurted out, I don't talk usually. I blurted out, I says, I'm going to be bigger than Hendrix someday. And the band stopped, looked at me. Almost, I felt the car even stop. And everybody just looked at me like they knew that, you know, that I, I, I could play guitar, but not like Hendrix. And then the drummer said, as a guitar player? And I said, no. And, and, I, and, I, and that was it. I said, no, not as a guitar player. But something told me at that moment that I was going to be bigger than Hendrix. And to this day, and I asked the, the guitar player, Eddie, I talked to him on the phone a while back. He went back to Toronto, you know. The, the band broke up after, uh, you know, we, we got to Motown. And uh, we are trying, I was trying to get a, a green card and the band broke up. I tried to get the other band members a green card, but they didn't want to pursue it. They, they wanted to go back to Canada. I was the only one that wanted to keep doing the Hollywood thing. And that, that to me, that was, that was a, an, an, an admission, a couple of admissions that I had made that I didn't mean to. I never thought of it. I never, it never, but it was, it, it came out. And, and that's why I know that I'm, 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 um, I'm possessed by a really, really good spirit. <laughs> and uh, as my reward, you know, this is my reward. I, I, I get to uh, talk about it. And I think that's just talking about it now. I think that. I think that is my my job, because Hendrix never talked. He wouldn't have too many interviews. He was very shy. He didn't want to sing, you know, and and he didn't really knew that he he could sing. 
you know, everybody could sing, but Hendrix was not a singer. He was just a, he just wanted to be the guitar player, but not only sing, but he could write. And, and then he, 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 he was, he was ordained. And that's why, I think that's why he left us early. You know, that, that that's happens to those guys. Because like John Lennon, for instance, you know, I mean, wow, what, what a talent. The only Beatle I haven't hooked up with is uh, Paul. And well, Paul's really Yeah, well, Paul and I, we both, we, we, we got a bucket list going. He knows that my bucket list is to get high with him. And, and, and he told me, yeah, he, 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 he's looking forward to that. That's, said, Let's make it happen, mate. That's awesome, Tommy. Yeah, I, I want to thank you so much for talking to me. You are such a good storyteller. And, you know, I still think, as I said, when I was listening to um, You Rake My Eye this week and that whole album, it just took me back to when I was a little kid. And we had hit on it earlier that at that age, we just want to laugh. And so I want to thank yeah. you for many years of laughter. And uh, and thank you so much. Now, now your website, you, you have a website, right? Yeah, we got a couple of... Okay, so so everyone, Google Google Tommy Chong, Google Cheech and Chong. Go just tech, check out all their work and check out Tommy's work. Uh, go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 900 episodes. Email me at cooper at coopertalk.net. Twitter, I'm at coopertalk. Instagram, I'm at, at coopertalk1. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.